Well, good morning. Happy Easter. I'd like to welcome you here. If you're uh, here with us uh, in the room, if you're uh, a first-time guest or a visitor or uh, someone who calls Crossroads home, if you're joining us online, we're glad that you are, are here with us this morning. Do I get to play with that while I'm up here? That looks like a lot of fun right now. Uh, we are so glad that you're here. My name is Kurt, and uh, I am so honored that you chose to spend Easter Sunday here with us at Crossroads Christian Church. Here at Crossroads, our mission is that we exist to bring people to Jesus Christ and to assist them in becoming as fully devoted and reproducing followers. And, and that is, when we say it's our mission, that is our commitment. That's what we want to be and strive to be as a church. We're so glad that you're here with us today to celebrate what I think is the greatest moment in human history, the resurrection of Jesus. And I thought about that because a lot of times when this time of the year rolls around, I, I try not to take a huge, uh, hugely different approach to Easter than I would any other Sunday. I want to kind of approach the sermon writing and the, the service planning and all that about the same way. But of course, you know, in the back of your mind as, as, a, as a preacher, as a pastor, this Sunday carries a little bit more significance. So you do put a little more thought into it. And and, and try to make things just right, you know, you, you want all this to work out just right. And, and I thought about this because two years ago, you might remember what was going on when Easter rolled around. Like, we were just getting into everything being shut down with COVID. And uh, at that time, I was at the church in Oregon, and we had really heavy restrictions. Like, you couldn't have more than 10 people in a room and, and all of this. And so uh, we were just kind of figuring out how to do the online church service thing. And so I um, would, would go in some point in the week and record a sermon, and then uh, the music team would, would come in, and we would record the music, and then uh, I would spend Friday putting it all together and Saturday uploading it. And then I would sit with my family on the couch and watch church on a Sunday morning. And that was usually about the 15th time I had heard the sermon. It kind of lost its punch a little bit. But Easter, I thought, I want to do it special for Easter. And so I went out, and uh, we, we lived in this town in the mountains, and there was this, this beautiful river that went through. So I was like, I'm going to go down by the river in this park and, and, and video the sermon there. And it didn't go well. Like, there was just too much going on, a little too much noise. I got sick like halfway through it, and I'll spare you those details, but um, it just, I had to, to bail out of that one. So then the next day, I thought, I'm going to go try again, but I'm not going to go clear back down by the river. I'm going to go over here by my kid's school and, uh, and do it there because there's a big field behind the school. There's a mountain back there. It's a really cool backdrop. So I did that, recorded the whole sermon, went off really well. I noticed about halfway through, there was an airplane circling over my head, and I didn't think anything of it. You know, it was up there. I ignored it. I was watching back on, on the sermon to do my editing, and it was just deafening, louder than me for a solid 10 minutes. And I was like, okay, and that's like probably the most important 10 minutes of the sermon, <laughs> so that was scrapped. And so finally, after all these trials, I just went back to the church, and it was just me alone in the building by myself, me and my camera. I felt kind of defeated, and I pulled up a table like this and a stool and preached to a camera for about 30 or 45 minutes or so, and that was my Easter sermon. And I thought, man, how is, how is Easter, the, the, the Sunday like this, where we've got uh, you know, people visiting and all this, and it's me by myself giving a sermon. Last year, you know, we were putting things back together, but it was still very limited in areas. So it's so nice to be here today with this kind of gathering, with, with a big gathering. This is the third service we've run today. We started at 6.30 this morning across the street over by the pond in the wind and the rain. 
It was fantastic. About 90 people showed up for that. And, and uh, it was really fun from my perspective down in front of everybody because I was kind of out of the wind. And so I was great. Like, I could have just kept going, you know. And, and uh, I looked out, and it looked like a bunch of ninjas in the crowd. Like, they've got stuff across their face and over there. It's like looking like this, you know. And, <laughs> but I thought, you know what? We do that and go to a Chiefs game, or we go to that and go watch our kids play soccer. We can do it for, for Jesus once a year. And so that's what I told them. They didn't buy that, but that's what I told them anyway. <laughs> And we went with that. It's so great to be here with you all today. And I've thought about how these last couple of years have, have seemed at times so dark and difficult. And we've wondered, are we ever going to get out of all of this that we've been dealing with the last couple of years? And it makes me almost kind of wonder what that time was like, that Passion Week and those days with Jesus. If you, if you think about that, we, we talked about last Sunday being Palm Sunday, and that was the day that Jesus rode into uh, Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and people waved the palm branches and shouted Hosanna, and they worshiped him, and, and I mean, he was the greatest thing ever in their eyes, and it wasn't long until they turned on him. And we read this in the Bible, but yet, you know, let's be honest, we kind of do the same thing. We'll worship Jesus and, and, and talk like he's the greatest thing ever, and then we turn on him at some point, too. But by Friday, they have turned on him so much, they put him on a cross, and he is brutally executed. And he's put in a tomb, and he lays in the tomb on Friday night and, and all day Saturday, and then our story picks back up on Sunday morning. But I thought about that because we read this story in the Bible, and if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 20 today. If not, it'll be up here on the screens when we, we jump into this. But we're going to look at John's version of the resurrection story today. Because I thought a lot about how we move from that darkness into that time of light. John chapter 20, if you've got a Bible, the story starts like this in verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. I'm going to push pause here for just a second. Because I want to focus on where it says there, early in the morning, while it was still dark. I love the Gospel of John, and one of the biggest reasons I love it is John is simultaneously literal and figurative. It's been said about the Gospel of John that it, it is shallow enough that a toddler can wait in it, and deep enough you can never find the bottom. Because when John says something, often it has two meanings. And I think about this because he says very early on the first day of the week while it was still dark. There's literal meaning there. This morning, I was driving here at 5 a.m., and, and we were up at about 4.30 getting ready to come here, and it was funny because we made our final call on the 6.30 service yesterday afternoon, watching the weather, seeing what it was going to be like, if it was going to rain or hold off, and then it rained overnight, and so Ben's texting me, telling me he thinks it might be muddy, and I was like, well, I'll check it out when I get there. So at 5, 5.15 or so, him and I are across the street walking with our phones out with the flashlights to see if it's muddy over there or not. It was still dark. I left my office to head over there a few minutes after 6. It was still dark. So it's literal when John says, while it was still dark, but it's also figurative. It's figurative because this is a dark time. Maybe you, you know the names of the days of the, of the, the Passion Week, maybe not, but Saturday, after Good Friday has happened, Saturday is called Silent Saturday. And Silent Saturday is called that because, at least from what we read in the Bible, really doesn't seem like anything happened. There's like one quick little line, I think, in the Gospel of Matthew that says something about what the Jewish leaders requested of the Romans. That's about it. We don't see God necessarily on the move here. And I think about this because that is often when that darkness starts to settle in. I'm sure most of us in this room can relate to this, but 
If you've ever lost somebody that was close to you, lost somebody that you loved, you know the day that you lose them is hard. Okay, and even if you know that they've gone to heaven, like you, you, you believe that their soul is in heaven, they were right with God, they, they'd made God uh, the Lord of their lives, it's still a hard day. But the next day is often even harder. That next morning, because that's when the reality starts to set in. That's the day you wake up and they're gone. That's the day you wake up and they, they're really gone. Friday was a hard day, but Saturday, that was the day that the hope was completely lost. That was the dark time for the followers of Jesus. It was dark and quiet. It was hopeless. And part of that reason is because for everybody else, the, the, the story just went on. The drumbeat just marched on. The people of Jerusalem just went on about their, their Saturday and their Sunday. The, the Jewish leaders thought they had put a rebellion to bed. And, and the Romans thought they had taken care of a problem. But for the, the followers of Jesus, they were terrified. They were scared. They were left hopeless. Their leader, their Messiah, he was gone. They didn't understand resurrection. They didn't know what that meant, and so they were lost. And even though we refer to Saturday as silent Saturday, God was far from silent. He was anything but silent. He was far from absent, and he certainly wasn't setting back idle. Jump back here into the story in verse 2. It says, So Mary came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That's, that's John, by the way, labeling himself. That's one of my favorite details of Scripture. If I ever were to write a gospel, I would make sure you knew if Jesus loved me more than the rest of them. So um, <laughs> he says that about himself, the one whom Jesus loved. And Mary tells him, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. Now what she's saying here, his body's gone. But what is she not saying here? She's not saying, well, he's risen from the dead. She, she doesn't understand that yet. She just notices that his body is gone. See, there was a real thought among the disciples that the Jewish leaders would take the body of Jesus and get rid of it. They would go hide it. They would go, go get rid of it somewhere so that they could never find it. And there was a thought among the Jewish leaders, the disciples would go in and take his body, and they would claim he's risen from the dead. And so that's kind of what they're thinking here. They just noticed that his body is gone. Again, nobody understood the concept of resurrection. I mean, after all, when somebody dies, they're gone. They don't come back from the dead outside of, you know, maybe a minute or two on a, a table in an ER when they're resuscitated. It just doesn't happen when somebody's dead and buried they're gone. And yet Jesus told them about this all along. Go back to the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2. He's on the, the temple and he's, he's challenging some of the Jewish leaders and he tells them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. They think he's talking about the literal physical building behind them. They're like, well, it took us 46 years and you're going to do it in three days? But he's talking about himself. He's talking about his own life, his own body here. See, again, when somebody dies, they're gone. I've lost uh, people close to me. I'm sure you have too. And I always, I always kind of laugh at this, but I think back to my, my cousin's daughter. My cousin Aaron, he's got a daughter named Avery. And when my grandpa passed away, it's been a little over 15 years, Avery was a newborn, like not even quite a year old when, when he passed. She didn't understand this. She, I mean, she didn't even get a chance to know who he was. But my family's one of those. They like to go down to the cemetery and visit the grave and, and put flowers at Memorial Day and all that. And Avery, all she would point at, and she goes, there's Grandpa Martin. He's dead. He's really dead. Like, she had to clarify it. He wasn't just dead. He was really dead. Like, she really emphasized that. 
That's where we're at with, with this, this story. Jesus is gone. And like you, the people I've lost in my life, I've not seen them since before they, they passed. The idea that Jesus could rise from the dead, come out of the tomb, is a stumbling block for so many people. Because in our world, the physical human world that we see, that just doesn't happen. And therefore, the resurrection can be a stumbling block to faith for so many people. Like I'd say that we struggle to believe in something we don't fully understand. We're skeptical. We need to know things. We need to know the deep down underlying reasons for it. But just because we struggle to understand it, it doesn't mean the resurrection of Jesus is any less of a cause for celebration. What I want to do is just take a couple of of looks at this text, and I want to make a couple of observations here on why the resurrection is cause for celebration. The first one is up here on the screen. You don't have to understand in order to believe. You don't have to understand the resurrection in order to believe in it. Jump back here into our story. Verse 3 of John chapter 20. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Push pause real quick. Two little details here. First, again, the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, the way he wants you to know that, also wants you to know he's faster than the other disciples. (laughs) Again, if I were to write a gospel, I would let you know the things I'm good at. The stuff I'm not, I would ignore that. But I would let you know, hey, I'm faster than Peter. You know, the guy who we're building the church on, I'm faster than him. But the more important detail to this story is Jewish men don't run. Or at least in this culture, in this time, they didn't run. That was very undignified for them. That was below a Jewish man to run because you had to kind of like pull up your your tunic so that your feet were free and run. You showed off your ankles. That was very, very undignified. And you only see a few instances in Scripture of a Jewish man running. When that happens, that should get your attention. Something important is happening. So they take off running for the tomb. Verse uh, 6, it says, or verse 5, it says, John bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him, and he went straight into the tomb. Finally, the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. And then the key here is verse 9. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So what do we see here? The first three people, according to the Gospel of John, the first three people who see the empty tomb have no idea what's going on. They don't understand it. But two of them, it says, believed. John believes, and in a few verses it says Mary believes. They believe without understanding this. And I like this because the Bible is full of people who believed without understanding. That's because the Bible is chock full of people just like you and me. People who are skeptical, people who, who, who need proof, people who want to know more than just the what. They want to know the why as well. Uh, that's something I've told you guys before. I, that, that's how I am. I don't want to know just the what. I need to know the why, especially if it's something you want me to believe in. Don't just tell me what to believe. Tell me why I should believe in it. I need to peel the onion back more and more. I told Brad when I started here and, and Tracy and some of the staff, I'm going to ask why questions all the time. It's not because I'm challenging you. I just need to understand. I need to know why we do things a certain way because it helps me get a grasp on these a little bit. And I'm so glad that doesn't apply to faith or at least to belief in Jesus 
Because if we were required to understand everything about Jesus in order to believe in him, none of us would be able to. None of us could be able to believe in him fully because we couldn't understand him fully. We don't have all the facts. We have to be comfortable not knowing the why. That's where faith comes into play. See, there's this idea that faith and belief are kind of like the same thing, that, that, that they, they mean the same. And they, they come from the same Greek root word, but they're different tenses. One has more to do with an action. One has more to do with the noun. But belief and faith are a little bit different. Belief, for example, is based on something that appeals to your senses. And it allows you to make a judgment. Belief would be like you saying, I believe that the best barbecue place in town is Q39. Well, why do you believe that? Well, because you have been there. You've tasted it. You've smelled it. You, you, you've experienced it. You're, or are you going to have a belief on what the best movie is or the best book is or the best music artist is because they appeal to your senses? Faith, on the other hand, faith is based on what we don't know. Faith requires testing and trusting. They're similar, but they're not exactly the same thing. And so when it comes to faith and belief, often our faith will fuel our belief. But sometimes it has to almost work the other way around. Sometimes we have to believe before we can have faith. And sometimes we want to build that faith up with a full understanding, and that goes against what faith ultimately is. See, I think there's a misconception in thinking that to fully understand Jesus, uh, or to fully believe in Jesus, you have to fully understand him first. Maybe you've been taught this in the past, whether intentional or unintentional, that to come to church, you have to kind of act a certain way, and you have to believe a certain way, and you have to follow a certain way. You have to, there, there are certain things you can say and can't say, or do and can't do. Otherwise, you know, you might burst into flames when you walk in the door of the church. And, you know, I think I was kind of taught that growing up, whether it was intentional or, or not. And now come to think of it, actually, our pews in our church were orange. I don't know if that was to cover the burn marks or what, but, um, I mean, it was the 80s. Everything was orange and brown back then, but that's a different story for a different day. You see, that's the idea that a lot of churches follow. Get your act together, and we'll introduce you to Jesus. And, and I just want to kind of make this clear. That's not the path we want to follow here. Because that's not the path Jesus followed. When it comes to coming to Crossroads, I kind of want you to understand our goal and how we want you to, to, to learn to embrace Jesus. It kind of follows this model here. We want you to belong, believe, and become. Now, what do I mean by that? You belong to the, the church. Come join the church. Come join our community. Join our family. Get plugged in. Join a small group. Join a Bible study. Uh, join a service team. Belong. Become a part of of the body here. You may say, well, I don't, I don't have it all figured out yet. Great, neither do the rest of us. Come join us. Come belong to us. And that in belonging to us, we want to lead you into belief in Jesus. We want to introduce you to Jesus through sermons on the stage, through Bible lessons, through experiences, so that you'll believe in him. And as you believe in him, ultimately, you'll become like him. You'll learn what it means to walk like him and, and, and to follow him. That's, that's like discipleship is, is a way to kind of describe this, or the fancy word is sanctification. You're becoming like Jesus day by day. And here's a catch to this I want you to understand. All of us, those of us who have been in the, the church for, for years, we're still somewhere between two and three. None of us have it all figured out. 
All of us are still trying to become like him. We're still developing our belief more and more. So I want you to understand that we're going to progress through that at different speeds and paces because we're all created uniquely. We're wired differently. We have different emotions and different triggers and different, different ways we react and respond to things. And we see this even in the Bible. Go back here to this story. We see three characters in this story. All three respond and react differently to what they see. Mary sees the empty tomb, and her first response is to go find Peter and John. Peter and John take off running to the tomb. John faster, obviously. He gets there, and he pauses. Peter goes straight on in. He doesn't hesitate. John finally goes in. He sees, and he believes. Let me just tell you something. If, if you don't have it all figured out, you're like, I don't fully understand this. Let me just tell you, you can rest assured you are just like so many of the rest of us and like so many people in the Bible. In fact, the disciples didn't even have it all figured out. These guys who walked with Jesus on a regular basis, it says in verse 19 that that night, after he's come out of the tomb, that night it said they were in a room with the door locked, hiding out of fear for the Jewish leaders. Do you think that sounds like some guys who had it all figured out? They walked with Jesus day in and day out for three years. If they understood what had happened, these men who ran, ran and hid, they wouldn't be hiding in a locked door. They would be shouting it from the rooftops. They would be letting everybody know what was going on and what was taking place. Some of you have been walking with Jesus for far more than three years. Some of you, maybe today is your very first step. And if that's the case, I just want to say we're glad that you're here. We're so glad that you are here. Because we don't have it all figured out, we don't expect you to as well. In fact, I would say this, just, just to make it a blanket, blanket point here, don't think you have to have everything figured out in order to take your next step. Just take it. Start walking towards Jesus and start walking with Jesus. Here's my second observation from the text here. Jesus welcomes your doubts. He welcomes your doubts. Again, you don't have to have it all figured out, and he welcomes your doubts. Jump ahead here in the text to verse 24. It says, now Thomas who is one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. I mentioned they were behind a locked door. Jesus showed up and talked to them and, and then left, and then Thomas shows up. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and I put my hand in his side, I will not believe. It's easy to pick on Thomas here. We, we kind of tease Thomas. In fact, we call him Doubting Thomas. But he needed physical tangible proof. He wasn't just going to take their word for it. He needed to be convinced. I'm really glad we're not a skeptical people like Thomas was, you know, that we don't have to have that kind of proof. That only existed in Bible times. I'm really glad that's the case, right? You know that's not true. I mean, my goodness, we're like the most skeptical society, I think, in modern history. And if you're like me, my age and younger, we're just naturally skeptical, period. Like the, the millennial generation on down are, are incredibly skeptical. They want to know. They want proof. They want to be convinced about things. But let's also give Thomas a break here. Because if, if somebody that you followed and knew and loved met the kind of death that Jesus had met, where there was zero doubt that he had, had died and been buried, and then two days later somebody goes, hey, guess what? I just saw, I just saw him. You're like, there's no way. There's no way. 
So we can give Thomas a little benefit of the doubt here. This is a pretty unbelievable story here. It's not bad for him to want a little more than just hearsay. Well, Jesus responds to him. Jump ahead a week later, it says in verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, again, they're still hiding in locked doors, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hand, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now, doubt is a big issue for a lot of people. And a lot of times we look at what Jesus says there in verse 27. I'll highlight it in yellow. And we, we act like this is some hardline command from Jesus to stop doubting and believe. Like if we, if we doubt at all, we're, we're disobeying Jesus. But I think we're misconstruing this a little bit. Because Jesus understood something. Thomas had seen him and had been able to touch him and had been around him for all this time. So for Thomas, it was a little bit different. Jesus did appeal to his literal physical senses. And so he needed that. But Jesus also knew that in a, a matter of a few weeks, people wouldn't be able to touch him any longer, wouldn't be able to see him any longer. And that one of these days, people like me would show up who is a skeptical person who does need to ask the why questions. That's why he says in verse 29, because you have seen, he's talking to Thomas, you have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus understood full well that he was going to create people like us who needed that proof, who needed, needed to know. See, I think there's this misconception that, that doubts aren't allowed. I know growing up in church, I was kind of taught this. And again, I don't know if this was intentional or unintentional. I'm not blaming anybody who taught this to me. But there was this idea that doubting was bad, that it was like a, a knock on my faith, that it made my faith weak or shallow or just straight up that I didn't trust enough. And the older I've gotten, I, I don't think that's true at all. I think that doubting can absolutely be welcome so long as doubting is funneled in the right direction. And what I've kind of discovered in my own life is that when I have doubts, that often leads to more study, which leads to more knowledge of God, which will deepen and strengthen my faith in God. I think it's all about how we approach it. Uh, there's a, a, a scholar from Northern Ireland named Alistair McGrath. The guy is a, one of the most brilliant men on the planet, one of the most intelligent men on the planet He's got multiple doctorate degrees, some in fields I can't even pronounce. Uh, but back in, in one of his first runs at it, he was working on a PhD in molecular biophysics. And in that process, he came to faith in Christ. And he's gone on over the last 50 plus years to become, and I think, one of the, the top writers in a Christian apologetics the world has seen. But he wrote a book several years ago called Doubting. And he addresses the topic of doubt. And in that book, he says, a failure to understand something does not mean it is irrational. It may simply mean it lies on the far side of our limited understanding to take things in and make complete sense of them. What's he saying? Sometimes something is too big for us to grasp. And it's our kind of natural response when something is too big to grasp to say, well, then it's not real. But he's saying, no, we are limited God is not. And his whole theme of doubting that I love, that kind of shook me when I read it for the very first time, is that doubt is not the opposite of faith. That's kind of what I had been led to believe. Doubting is the opposite of faith. He says certainty is the opposite of faith. 
You cannot possibly use faith for something that is a certain guarantee. If I were to drop this right now, I know what's going to happen. It's going to go down, whether it hits the stage or hits the floor. That part I don't know, but it's going to drop until it hits something. I don't need faith for that to happen. And what he kind of says here is that it's actually impossible to have faith that that's going to happen because of the very nature of the law of certainty. And, and so we, we read this and we see this, that faith doesn't work in that direction. But at the same time, faith isn't also just blindly following some belief. Maybe you've heard the phrase that faith is walking down a dark staircase and you don't know what's at the bottom. I don't know that I fully buy that. I think faith tells you what the next step or two might be. It may not show you everything, but faith shows you at least what's directly in front of you because faith is based in logic and reason. We have rearview mirrors in our cars so we can see what's behind us. Now, they're smaller than our windshield, so we can see in front of us, but how do I navigate the curves that are coming up in front of me? Because of what I've already navigated, because of what I've seen, because of what I've experienced and God has led me through. Faith can't have certainty. It's also not blind. There's no concrete proof that it exists, and we're not ignoring any lack of proof that it doesn't. The resurrection falls into this category because for us, resurrection seems illogical and unreasonable. But that doesn't make it any less true. Jesus welcomes your doubts. He welcomes your questions. He did all throughout the pages of the, the Gospels, whether that was the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, or Nicodemus all throughout the Gospel of John, or the various Gentile people he encountered that asked him honest questions. They needed to know, and he answered their questions. Folks, you can't have all the answers. If, if you're searching today, you're not going to find all of the answers. And that's okay. That's okay. You're not called to have all the answers. You're simply called to believe in a God we can't see. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans 10. He says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, period. There's no conditions on this. Like you don't have to pass a competency exam for this to be the case. You don't have to name all the books of the Bible or, you know, seeing all fly away in the key of F or anything like that. Like, you, you just believe in him and confess him, and you are saved. Jesus can handle your doubts. He welcomes your doubts. And church, if, if you call Crossroads home, this is for you. Church, we should welcome the questions of people who come in asking them. We shouldn't turn them away because they ask questions, especially if they're questions we can't answer. We need to be okay telling people, you know what, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but I'm willing to walk with you until we figure it out. I'm willing to point you in the right direction and, and help take you there because I want to know too. We need to be okay with this. Hear me on this. The minute, the minute you have Jesus completely figured out is the minute you no longer need him. The minute you have the Bible completely mastered is the minute it no longer works in your life. There always will be a mystery to understanding Jesus. And that's okay. Here's my third observation from this text. And it might be the most important one of all these. The resurrection of Jesus gives us a cause for celebration because the resurrection gives life. It gives life. You think about what took place in this moment in history. The Jews thought they had put this Jesus movement to bed. The Romans thought they had squashed a potential rebellion. 
The Jewish leaders thought that they had, had gotten rid of their problems. The followers of Jesus were crushed. They were hiding. They were, were everywhere except where they needed to be. But Jesus changed everything by walking out of that tomb. Like Brad said earlier, if we took the resurrection away from the crucifixion, what do we have? We have an amazing gesture. But because he walked out of that tomb, it changed everything. Those same disciples that ran and hid in fear gave their lives for the gospel decades later. That same Peter who the night before three times lied about who he was because he didn't want the same fate as Jesus, just a few weeks later is standing down and staring those exact same Jewish leaders in the eye saying, bring it on. Come on, give me your best shot. The resurrection changed everything because through the blood shed on the cross and through Jesus walking out of the tomb, death was defeated once and for all. Now, not physical, earthly death. We're still going to suffer and endure that. But the minute we do, it says if you believe in him, if you've accepted him, if you're walking with him, if you've given your life to him and made Jesus the Lord of your life, you're going to have eternal life with the Father. The resurrection gives you that life. You do not have to fully understand it in order to take that next step. You just have to believe in him. You may think that you're not ready for Jesus today, but trust me, he is ready for you. He is ready for you. He went to the cross to atone for your sin, and he walked out of the grave to give you new life. And we need this because we can't do this on our own. There is no possible amount of good deeds you can do or service acts you can perform or money you can give or time you can offer. Okay, there, there's, there, there are no self-help books or TED Talks to get us through this. We need Jesus. And him walking out of the tomb gave that to us. That's why he said in John chapter 6, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. The resurrection brings you this life that nothing else can. We cannot save our own souls. Nothing in this world can. Nothing that man has created can take away our sin. Nothing that we have come up with will restore us to God. That's why he sent Jesus to give us his blood, to give us his life. 2 Corinthians, Paul says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are, are going to close this out a little bit different today. So I'm going to offer you a takeaway, and it's, it's probably the most simplified takeaway I can ever offer you. They're usually an action statement or something that you can do. This one is simple, and it's three words. I want you to believe in Jesus. If you've been a member of Crossroads or any church for any length of time, I want you to continue to believe in Jesus. If you aren't, and you haven't made that declaration yet, I want to challenge you with that today. The band's going to come out here in just a moment, and they're going to play another song as we close things out today. But I want you to respond to this. And, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to have some folks back here at the back of the room. We're going to have some up here at the front of the room. If that's you, if you say, Kurt, I don't know Jesus, and I've got a lot of questions, when this song plays, will you find your way to those double doors back there or right up here to the front corner of the stage and find one of our team members? They're ready to answer some of those questions for you. They don't have all the answers, but they're willing to have that conversation with you and hopefully let you know just a little bit more about what this means. And it's our hope. It's our hope that we respond the way Peter told those people in that first day of the church how to respond. When they said, this is awesome, what do we need to do? 
And he tells them without telling them to believe, and then he tells them to repent of their sins and be baptized. So we're ready for you today. You may wonder if you're ready for Jesus. He's ready for you, and so are we. So as the band comes and gets ready to play this final song, and we declare once and for all that death was arrested, that death was done away with, would you stand? Would you stand today as we close this out?